What you are about to hear is not 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 a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people, journalists, business leaders, academics, politicians. I think the term is a deep state. Oh dear. Investors, experts, diplomats, citizens. Coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, pm101.club, and join the fastest growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. 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 Enjoy the show. The show. The show. The show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Media 101 the place where we all hear live and direct from people in the news, in their own voices, in their own words, in long form, and where anyone who wants to can join to ask them a question, share their thoughts, or just listen. I'm Jeff Browning, and I'm grateful to you for being here. Today, we're excited to release part of a conversation, interview, and audience Q&A we had with Aaron Banco, a healthcare reporter at Politico. Over the past week, we've talked about how countries around the world are responding to COVID, as well as the U.S. domestic response. Today, we're doing a deep dive into the actual impacts of the pandemic on people living in places around the world with limited health infrastructure or limited access to vaccines, and how that influences the thinking of top decision makers. There's no question that wealthier countries should donate vaccine stocks to countries that are less well off. But big questions remain about where, when, and how many vaccines they'll actually donate. Earlier in the pandemic, an international mechanism was created called COVAX, meant to facilitate this donation process. While COVAX has fallen short of its overall goals, vaccine donations are thankfully picking up. Erin has traveled and reported from all around the world, but she's also very well versed on how U.S. decision makers think and make decisions. We were very grateful for a chance to speak with her right now as the Biden administration and allied governments around the world weigh decisions about where to donate vaccines and when. It was a great conversation with fantastic audience questions, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. As always, if you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.club or pm101.live. They both work and we'll get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. So, Aaron, the first thing that I want to ask you is about this interesting career arc that you've taken. Uh, You started for many years as a national security reporter, but also reporting in these conflict zones, especially in Arabic-speaking countries, and are now working on an issue uh, of such importance, but um, in what appears at least superficially to be a very different field of study. So I'd like to know kind of how you went from covering conflict zones to covering healthcare. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. So I started my career in Cairo back in 2010-11. I was studying uh, Arabic after after I graduated from Madison intensively in Cairo, and that was right around the time of the, the Arab Spring. So I, I started out as a freelancer um, covering the... Um, revolution in Egypt and the fallout of the elections there. And then right around that time was when the Syrian conflict started. So there was a lot to do in the region. Um, And so I stayed there and covered Syria in and out of the country. I was in Turkey and then sort of continued on that career path for uh, a long time. I went to grad school in between. Um, and then around 2015, 2016, uh, it was time to come home. There was the election of Donald Trump, and there was a lot going on here domestically that I wanted to be a part of in the journalism world. Also, living overseas was getting more and more difficult, um, particularly in, th- in that part of the world. And uh, covered national security for the Daily Beast um, for for two and a half years, doing primarily the Mueller investigation and other congressional investigations that were going on on Capitol Hill. Um, and then I, when COVID sort of popped up, we didn't really have anybody covering healthcare at the Daily Beast, and it really started out as an international story, a, a national security story, a diplomatic story, right? And that was you know those subjects I had been a part of for a long time, and. Uh, um, really got into the COVID story and and then got hired by Politico to 
um, to cover COVID. And it's been kind of a wild two and a half years, but um, my whole family's in healthcare. So I feel right at home covering COVID. Definitely uh, uh, different than what what I'm used to doing, but for the time being, it's right where I want to be. And even during this global emergency, some of the conflicts that are occurring outside the United States have not abated. And it must be quite a compounded emergency in some of those places, right, Aaron? Do you do you have anything to tell us about how the COVID pandemic has interacted with these conflict zones themselves and how they've affected conflicts that are happening around the world? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the most sort of stark example we can look at right now is the U.S. departure, for example, from Afghanistan. Uh, after we we pulled out of Afghanistan, um, there were really big concerns about um, what uh, Afghans would have access to in the way of COVID-19 vaccines uh, now that the U.S. wasn't there, um, uh, how they would get their, their hands on life-saving treatments. Um, and now what we see the U.S. government doing is, is creating new pots of money to specifically try and help uh, Afghan refugees, for example, here in the U.S. get access to COVID-19 um, vaccines. But then you also look to uh, parts of, of Africa. Many of these countries do not have very high vaccine rates, and some are still tr- struggling to get to the 10% population vaccination rate. Um, and and uh, many of these countries do not have strong uh, healthcare systems. So when there's you know five cases in a village, that sort of overwhelms that local that local village and that local healthcare system. Um, and and so these uh, these issues that pop up in in these parts of the world where the U.S. has been very active, whether that be the Middle East or parts of Af- Africa, uh, or have we have bases uh, in in many countries around the world, the COVID, uh, you know, virus has really brought up all sorts of questions within the administration about how do we continue to have diplomatic relations in these countries if we're not able to help vaccinate their populations. And this has been a really big sticking point um, for people in the State Department, people in USAID, the aid agency, who every day their job is to figure out how do we help the countries where we've been invested in for decades, how do, how do we help those populations get vaccinated and save lives? Aaron, the Afghanistan example is such a stark one because it really brings into relief this question about how diplomacy and politics are interacting with the vaccination rollout, right? Because we understand, as we were saying before, that the United States benefits when everyone is vaccinated. And we're hoping that everyone can become vaccinated regardless of the political orientation of their government. But there's a a country that's now being led by a government that the United States was at war with for 20 years, that there's this urge to sanction, to cut off all trade links, to cut off all aid. How, uh, in the case of Afghanistan, are American leaders now thinking about the pandemic in that country? Uh, are they starting to come to the belief that regardless of the Taliban takeover, there needs to be some kind of aid support for the pandemic as it's occurring there? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So you talk to people, uh, officials inside the State Department or inside uh, the U.S. aid agency, uh, which is sort of an offshoot of the State Department that works on the ground and and, um, low and middle income countries across the world to help deliver things like a vaccine or, or healthcare or trained workforce. And they really, those individuals really try to separate the politics from the aid and the humanitarian efforts that the U.S. government um, are are leading uh, on the COVID front. But but what we're finding more and more is that you really can't separate politics from humanitarian relief all that much, particularly in places like Myanmar or in places like Afghanistan. There are political considerations that go into um, how we think about helping um, individuals in places like I said, like Afghanistan and Myanmar, and where our focus has been in the Biden administration has been really helping Afghan refugees, so people who have been forced to flee that country to other countries get vaccinated. Uh, we've taken in a lot, thousands and thousands of Afghan refugees into our country. Uh, if you remember, maybe a month or two ago, there was a big measles outbreak among Afghan refugees who had um, been forced to flee, and the U.S. was responsible really uh, for 
for, for vaccinating those populations um, and making sure that they had their measles vaccine. And, and, and also, uh, you know, like I said, we have funding set aside to help them get COVID-19 vaccines as well. You know, USAID is present in, you know, dozens, uh, uh, hundreds of countries <laughs> across the world. The U.S. government works with, with the World Health Organization and UNICEF to ensure that, that their funding um, goes far, that, that they partner with local organizations on the ground to ensure if we're, hey, if we're saying, hey, Afghanistan, we, the Afghanistan people, we have $500 million to help you get vaccinated. We're going to partner with UNICEF or, or other kinds of organizations, Red Cross on the ground to help you get vaccinated. That's how we're going about doing it. Now, in the case, for example, uh, like Myanmar, that is a completely different situation. If you remember, um, Back in February, there was a military coup in Myanmar, and now the the military uh, leaders are in power in that country, and it's been a very divisive um, issue for the world. Uh, the military leaders have been condemned uh, internationally. They've been accused of crimes against humanity. Um, and forced killings and what have you. And so the international community has really tried to figure out how to get, A, how to get vaccines into the country, into the hands of people who can take uh, the vaccine and distribute them equitably, not just to the supporters of the military, right? Um, and and also um, literally just logistically how to get the vaccine into the country. Uh, and so that's been a real big uh, head scratcher for the Biden administration and for the international community about, do we want to be giving vaccine to the military when they've, you know, killed dozens of, of, of people in the country in the last six months? So all of this is to say that there are political considerations that go into our vaccine distribution across the world. Some of those stories are a little bit, like you said, more stark and more glaring than others. So Aaron, even these political influences or political perspectives that are making their way into the process sometimes come with their own unique political priorities, right? And in the article that you wrote on December 8th uh, called It's a Sore Spot, which is about this question of how political influence is is helping or, or impacting the way that the vaccine rollout from the U.S. is occurring. Uh, you described the working group, which has the State Department, USAID, which you just spoke about, and the National Security Council, all working together about this geographical prioritization. And you mentioned that these three different agencies have themselves different political agenda and that are affecting the ideas that they're bringing to the table in the working group, even within the subject of of diplomatic or political uh, driving of the vaccine rollout. Could you talk a little bit, you mentioned USAID, but can you talk about how maybe the State Department and the National Security Council are thinking about this? What priorities do they have as they're approaching these questions? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the first thing I'll say is that the Biden administration has not made any of their decision-making on where to send vaccine uh, transparent. It is a very non-transparent process. They have not released any sort of lists of, of, of um, countries that have either asked for a vaccine and have been given a vaccine um, or, or the reasons behind how and, and when they decide to send these uh, vaccine abroad. And and so it sh I just want to you know it should be said that this is this is not transparent at all and this is something that lawmakers on Capitol Hill have been really adamant about is asking the State Department and USAID who work in coordination with one another on on the race to vaccinate the world they've been asking these agencies for for basically documents that show how they're making their decisions. Um, and none of that has been made public uh, yet. And so that raises a lot of questions about how the U.S. government is making decisions about where to send vaccine. And you talk to the State Department, they have one answer. You talk to the National Security Council, they have another answer. You talk to USAID, they have a completely different answer. So all of this is to say that the these agencies are really supposed to be working together to figure out how much vaccine does the U.S. have to donate 
and and where are these vaccine doses going to go and which countries are most in need. And at the beginning of this process, officials from the State Department were on Capitol Hill in a hearing and they said, you know, we have a set algorithm. We work together to figure out, you know, which countries are most in need. Um, but then what we found out the press over the past couple of months is that really what's been happening is that countries are submitting requests for vaccine for example, through diplomats, through the State Department. The State Department then works with USAID to determine um, whether that country has the ability to to take in those doses and administer them or whether they'll take them in and then not administer them and they go to waste. Um, But then there's this sort of parallel structure that exists within the White House where officials there really have the final say over where the doses go. And that includes, you know, conversations in the National Security Council, in the Oval Office. Um, So it is sort of a patchwork response, if that makes any sense. And so there's not a clear strategy within the administration about um, where vaccines go and why they're going there. And so members of the press have been raising all sorts of questions about this in recent weeks um, uh, because it's just not transparent. And what we found out is that, you know, the whole process officials have said, you know, we're not mixing politics with our donations. We're not using our vaccine for leverage. But without any transparency into the process, there's really no way of knowing that. And what we found out in the case, for example, like Myanmar, which Politico reported about, there really were political considerations that went into the decision to to donate doses. Um, And then another example we had was uh, an early announcement in January 2021 where members of Congress went to Taiwan and announced on the tarmac that the U.S. government would be donating 700,000 vaccine doses to Taiwan. Um, uh, so these two examples stand to show that there really were and are political considerations that go into play and into our vaccine donations. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong about that, but what's worrying again is the lack of transparency. So looking at this complex web of decision-making that we have now about the international vaccine rollout, maybe we could think a little bit about how we got here. Uh, We know that in April, this is when the government really started pivoting towards exports. But at this point, the new administration had only been in office for a few months. And the previous administration knew that this would be coming. They had already started implementing some of the domestic vaccines. So what kind of roadmap did the previous administration give the new administration about this international dynamic? Did they develop much of a plan for how to roll out the exports, or uh, was much of it decided only by the new administration? That's a really good question and something that I've been looking into over the past couple of weeks that I have yet to write about, but I I can talk about it on air now. So what we found out is that uh, in the summer, uh, right before the election in the Trump administration, um, there, there were officials inside the Department of Health and Human Services whose sole jo- job it was basically to forecast what um, international, you know, the international community would need in the way of vaccine after the vaccine came to fruition and emerged um, in the U.S. And so they developed a roadmap, basically, that laid out exactly how the U.S. administration should think about uh, giving doses away, either donating them, giving them to COVAX, which is sort of the the world's vaccine distributor, uh, and and sort of how the U.S. should go about thinking about uh, that distribution. So that plan was drawn up. Nobody has seen the plan uh, come to light. It hasn't been published anywhere. Uh, And so what I found out is that there were basically five bullet points in that plan. And it talked about, you know, we should be giving, in the first bullet point, we should be giving vaccine to strategic allies. So that included countries in Europe, it included Taiwan, it included Israel. And then the, the next two to, two to five bullet points included other sorts of considerations. So uh, the countries that had 
participated, for example, in the vaccine clinical trials. Those were the countries that should get to the head of the line in terms of um, getting the vaccine donations first because they had uh, participated in the trials. And and then there was sort of another category for for parts of Europe that had helped uh, invest in the vaccine making process. So there were There were all sorts of considerations at play, but there was a very sort of strategic look at how the U.S. should think about it. Now, that that document made its way through the White House all the way up to the president's desk, I'm told. And then what happened is January 6th happened. So after January 6th happened and the insurrection happened, uh, there wasn't much that was done in the way of signing things in the White House. And so that plan was never signed off on and never implemented, at least in the Trump administration. I'm told that plan did make its way uh, to the hands of the Biden administration during the transition period. Um, But I think what ended up happening, and I have to look more into this, but I think what ended up happening is the Biden administration basically put their own spin on it. I think they kept parts of that plan. But like I said, that strategy that they created under the Biden administration in HHS has not been made public either. Uh, thank you, Aaron. It sounds like this document that you've just described to us, and I think that everyone here who's listening is hearing about it for the very first time, which is very exciting. It does give us a good idea of the priorities that maybe the previous administration were considering. Uh, And it sounds like it was mostly those kinds of diplomatic and geopolitical priorities. Looking at the new administration's implementation, even if we, as you described, don't know exactly how they use this document, uh, do we have a new set of priorities? Do we have an idea of any differences in priorities that we're seeing, maybe even within the geopolitical dynamic, different regions that they might be focused on or prioritizing or any other kinds of different priorities that we can get from reading these tea leaves? Yes. So if you go back and look at some of the statements that were made this summer from State Department and USAID officials, there was an announcement that was made, I think, about the first either 55 million doses that would be donated or 80 million doses. I forget the exact number. But what the administration did is they laid out exactly which regions the doses would be going to. And um, even the doses that were going to COVAX for distribution were earmarked. So we had we had two pots. We had the direct donations that the U.S. government would be giving to countries, and then we had the doses that would be going to COVAX for distribution. And those COVAX donations were earmarked, which is something COVAX has really um, lambasted officials about because it doesn't allow them to make their own de- doesn't allow the group to make its own decisions basically about where where those doses should go and which countries most in need but what you could tell from that announcement is that our strategic priorities this summer were really getting doses to the northern hemisphere so to Canada to Mexico also to our allies in Latin America and and then there were there were some doses that were given to parts of the Middle East where we have relations ships, um, and then and then parts of Southeast Asia. So, f- for example, the Philippines got quite a bit of doses. Um, but what you found out from that initial announcement is that um, Africa was sort of last. And um, that continued to be the strategy, or at least that continued to be sort of how things went for the next several months. Africa has really been left out uh, uh, of consideration for vaccine doses, not just by the U.S., but by Europe as well. And a lot of what the officials you speak to in the U.S. and Europe will say that part of the reason why they've been slow to donate doses to that part of the world, particularly to sub-Saharan Africa, is that the countries don't necessarily have the ability either to store the doses in freezers, uh, don't have the freezer capacity, or don't have the structures within their healthcare system to actually distribute the doses to their people. So they, they've been very wary about giving doses to countries that where, where the doses would go to waste, essentially. And, and um, so that's that's been a big issue for officials in U.S. And, and Europe who you speak to. But just we have not really ramped up our vaccine donations to Africa until quite recently. Uh, and that has been um, something that global health advocates have said 
has really allowed new variants to emerge. Um, and so the, the big focus right now for the administration going into 2022 is getting Africa vaccinated. And that's definitely the goal of COVAX as well. Uh, Aaron, since we're talking about the vaccine rollout in sub-Saharan Africa, and we're also acknowledging the diplomatic and political dynamic in the global vaccine rollout, it makes me curious about China. We know that although the U.S. and especially France have some close diplomatic relationships in sub-Saharan Africa, so does Beijing. And I'm wondering, with the U.S. and the EU perhaps letting down the continent in the vaccine support, if China have filled some of the gap, if they've been active, more active than we have in implementing vaccines in those countries? That's a great question. So what I can say is, um, excuse me, China has made a very recent announcement that they have pledged one billion um, doses to Africa in 2022. And that was seen as a huge announcement for China uh, and for Africa, quite frankly, um, because Africa, up until that point when the announcement was made, I think that was last month or maybe the month before, uh, had really been struggling to, to get doses. And so China has made a huge investment in getting vaccine to Africa. Um, now, the Biden administration has also pledged 1 billion Pfizer doses to the world in 2022, but we don't know whether those doses will go yet. I think uh, a large portion of them will end up going to COVAX for distribution in Africa, but that remains to be seen. Um, we have to also remember that the China's data on where they're actually uh, giving vaccine is not great. COVAX and UNICEF attempt to track every country's donations. Um, but what you can see from that very limited data set is that, yes, China has made a large investment uh, in Africa. Uh, they control a lot of the mines in Africa. They have a large economic and strategic, political strategic investment in Africa. And so it makes sense for them to, to give doses to where they're you know, economically invested. And Aaron, in some of your writing about these political and diplomatic dynamics in the vaccine rollout, you've described how some American officials are looking at this through the lens of that competition with China and Russia, where if the U.S. can help deliver vaccines effectively in some places, then we're creating diplomatic goodwill that the Chinese or Russians are, are thus not getting. And if the Chinese or Russians are sending vaccines successfully to a country, they're getting diplomatic goodwill there. And they're using their diplomatic relationships to help export their own products. Uh, but if this is the way that some who are focused on competition are looking at it, I'm curious, how are health experts looking at this? Are, are they seeing uh, one vaccine is better than another and from a position of effectiveness? Or do they generally view the places where Chinese or Russian vaccines are being implemented as plugging a gap in capacity? So I think that I have sort of two answers to that question. One is that global health advocates are trying to get you know, for example, officials working at the WHO or Gavi or other parts of COVAX are, are just trying to get enough supply in their hands to distribute in 2022, whether that comes from Pfizer, Moderna, uh, Sinopharm or, or Russia's or Sputnik, Russia's vaccine. They're just trying to get their hands on any kind of vaccine that has pretty good effectiveness to distribute um, to low and middle income countries across the world, because at this point, any kind of vaccine getting into the arms of these populations is important, uh, particularly, like I said, in Africa, where uh, vaccination rates are are uh, very poor. So, but then you talk to officials who are in the Biden administration or other parts of Europe who uh, say that, look, we like to talk about the fact that all vaccines are created equal when that really isn't the case, some vaccine are better than others. And for us not to consider that um, is going to be a detriment to the global vaccine vaccine uh, effort. And so I think there, it just really depends on who you talk to. Um, but I think from the global health advocate side, just getting shots in arms at this point, no matter what vaccine that is, is increasingly important, particularly with the threat of new and more transmissible variants such as Omicron. 
So, Aaron, when the public health experts tell you that some vaccines are more effective than others, can I ask you directly, do they see specific vaccines as less effective and which ones are those? It's really hard to get them to say which vaccine they like better than the others. But I mean, you talk to officials in the U.S. who have an interest in 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 propping up um, U.S. made vaccines. So a lot of officials you talk to in the U.S. say that Pfizer and Moderna are the best shots around and those are the ones that should be going into arms. I mean, yeah, if you look at the data, uh, you'll see that those mRNA shots are highly, highly effective, particularly um, also we're seeing their effectiveness in the, the U.S. booster campaign. Um, there are others who who look at the data and say, hey, the J&J shot is not great, right? We're seeing vaccine efficacy uh, wane very quickly or several months after shots go in arms. And then particularly with Omicron, we see the effectiveness of the vaccine essentially going to zero. So uh, there, but then you speak to some officials who say, look, while the J&J shot might not work for the U.S. population for the booster campaign at this point in time with the Omicron spread here, it could be very beneficial for parts of Africa where they'd want to get one in, one shots in arms and be done with it and also um, not have to store as many vaccine in the freezer. Uh, you have to remember logistically and infrastructure-wise for parts of Africa, it's very difficult to find freezer storage for some of these shots. And Aaron, if there's a difference between in effectiveness between the U.S. exports and exports from other countries, maybe looking at this through the lens of competition, even if it doesn't always make sense, it might have some logic to it, right? Because if vaccines from another country that are being exported are less effective, uh, does that mean that that country, I think we're talking about China, uh, that their diplomatic pressure on vulnerable countries to adopt those vaccines is going to lead to weaker immunity, perhaps more mutations in the countries that are that are using those vaccines? Uh, I think, like I said before, the actual data on the Chinese and Russian vaccine um, is not great. So I haven't seen a ton of great reporting on vaccine efficacy among those two shots. Uh, so it's very hard to determine what's actually going on on the population level of, uh, you know, with individuals who have received those shots. Um, but what I will say is that the, just by and large, the global health advocate message at this point is just more shots, more shots. They, they won't say, if you talk to people like Gabby or you talk to people at the WHO, they're not going to say we're not taking China's vaccine because it's not as effective as the five, Pfizer vaccine. They're going to say, sure, China, you want to you pledge 1 billion doses to Africa? We'll take it. We need to get shots in arms. And do you and the reason why that is becoming more of a diplomatic problem for the US is that the US has pledged, you know, by and far more doses than any other, you know, country combined, but China is going to start picking up their donations in 2022. And so the US has to continue to think about ways to also ramp up its donations. We've had problems getting Moderna, for example, to sign on to um, pledges to commit doses internationally or to sell doses internationally at cost rather than for profit, where we can't continue to rely on Pfizer as the only company that that donates doses or creates doses that we can donate. So there, there are going to be tough conversations for the U.S. administration in 2022 or at the end of 2022 into 2023 about supply and about how many more doses we can continue to pledge without, you know, more commitments from our own vaccine makers. I, I suppose, Aaron, the big takeaway here is that we don't really have the luxury to be thinking about competition between vaccine exporters when there's still this huge supply problem. And it makes me wonder how the newly focused domestic campaign for third shots, for boosters, might be affecting the supply factor for exports. Are you noticing any effect? Um, has this renewed push for more vaccinations in the U.S. had any effect on how uh, the U.S. is exporting vaccines? So this, I think, is going to be an increasingly important story over the next several weeks. You talked to officials in the U.S. maybe a week or two ago, and I think they would have told you that 
you know, they would they would have stayed with the administration's line of we can boost and we can donate, right? That has been what Fauci has said. That has been what Biden has said, which is we can continue to boost our population and we can continue to supply vaccine. I think that's still relatively true, but I think what global health advocates are beginning to worry about is the rollout of the booster campaign in Europe and then in parts of of Asia. So it's the knock-on effect of the U.S.'s decision to roll out boosters um, that is concerning global health advocates, right? So uh, there's only so much supply in the world. And so if vaccine uh, booster doses start eating into that supply that has already been earmarked for international distribution, that is going to become a problem for the world in 2022. So as of now, the forecasts on supply look pretty steady for the first half or maybe first few months of 2022. But I think the world is going to need another vaccine to come online in 2022 to ease fears about supply through the end of next year and the beginning of 2023. And we can begin to look at which company might begin to do that. And the Maryland-based Novavax does have a vaccine that has not been uh, distributed yet that has won authorization, emergency use authorization in Europe and with the WHO that will begin to come online in the next several months, which will really help the global vaccine effort. Aaron, before we move to the audience, let me just ask you one final question. And because we were talking about the campaign for third shots, for boosters, I think maybe it's an opportunity for us to evaluate the grand scope of U.S. domestic vaccine rollout, which is an enormous question. But we're now close to the one-year mark of the beginning of vaccination. Uh, We know that uh, much of what we've been talking about has been the new Biden administration and how they've been approaching this issue. But uh, the first vaccines happened under the previous administration. And we've now had a new uh, report from the House of Representatives on how they were approaching this. We have new disclosures. You've been covering this very closely for all of that time. So if looking back now with the benefit of some distance, what do you think are the biggest lessons that we've learned from the very beginning of vaccination in the U.S.? Hmm. That is a tough question, but I think a really important one. So I would say that the biggest lesson we've learned as a country is that there needed to be uh, more work done on the ground level to speak to people about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And I don't think, you know, you, you speak to officials who in hindsight will say, yes, we should have gone on the road and done more educational campaigns and really coordinated better with the states on how to message around the vaccine. The messaging has really been muddied since the beginning, Uh, you know, and and I think you talk to local doctors. For example, I was in Louisiana over the summer when they were dealing with Delta who say there are people in the state who just do not believe in the vaccine, who are hesitant to take it. And it's really hard to reverse course and change their minds at this point. And they'll credit that vaccine hesitancy to mixed messaging um, from different parts of both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And I think one of the biggest lessons is that we as a country have not done enough at the local grassroots public health level to convince people that the vaccine is both safe and efficacious um, and, and that we have not coordinated our messaging from the ground level all the way up to the White House. Uh, you know, we haven't done that well enough. And I think that, that just reflectively over the past couple of years, that has been one of the biggest impediments to you know, ramping up vaccination rates uh, here in the U.S. Um, and then I would say the other thing is that um, just, again, on the messaging standpoint, look, getting vaccine made for COVID-19 and rushing it to market is an incredibly complicated um, sort of incredible thing we've done over the last couple of years to get this this shot into arms. You know, it, it, it moves so swiftly and, and it, inqu- it required an incredible amount of effort on the part of uh, officials who worked in Operation Warp Speed under the Trump administration to get this vaccine out into the world. Um, but again, that the pace of the vaccine has has scared some people off. The, 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 the sort of short amount of time that we got the vaccine out into the public has 
um, sort of created some vaccine hesitancy. And so I think, again, on the messaging front, we really needed to do more ground level work in the Trump administration to to tell Americans that this vaccine was, again, again, safe. And, and then the third thing I would say is now we're in this period where we have commitments that we've made to the rest of the world. Um, I also don't think we moved quick enough to determine how we were going to deal with donations and how we were going to be, um, you know, distributing vaccine to low and middle income countries. It was always a pledge of the Biden administration to be a world leader on that front. But the campaign to really get that going did not start until probably in earnest until May. Uh, and, And that really delayed things for the world. And, um, It delayed conversations between the administration and the pharmaceutical companies about what the pharmaceutical companies were expected to provide for international donation. So those are some big, big thoughts. But those are the three things I would say. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. It's, of course, going to be a topic that will be studied for years, decades, perhaps even centuries to come. And as they say, history is written in real time and written in places like the pages of Politico. So thanks so much for all of your coverage and for answering all of these questions that we had for you today. We're really looking forward to give, uh, giving the audience an opportunity to ask you questions. And the first member of the audience that I'm going to go to is Dr. Dan. Uh, Dr. Dan uh, has been a participant in many of these programs. He was even an interview subject on here. He's a former health policy appointee from uh, the U.S. government, from the Obama administration. So I'm actually going to give Dr. Dan an opportunity to ask two questions if you have them. Dr. Dan, or maybe a question and a follow-up, but um, I'd like to hand the microphone over to you, sir. Yeah, thanks, uh, John. Um, hey, Justin and Aaron, thanks for being here. Uh, I uh, My question is uh, really, I guess, uh, twofold, since I get the bonus of two questions, so that, thank you. Uh, the first part is vaccine equity. You've alluded to this, and how will this shape the political landscape moving forward? Uh, understanding the role of China, Russia, and other powers uh, playing this game, uh, providing the nuggets and the little tools to win hearts and minds, so to speak, or at least political prowess in the other parts of the country. And specifically, I'm looking at Africa and other nations um, within there that they've actually provided these resources to to show uh, somewhat of, hey, we're going to take care of you. While, yes, in the background, the understanding is that there will be favors done or at least agreements in place. And um, personally, my personal opinion is that it's for leverage for them to be able to sort of, quote unquote, colonize uh, those resources. I'm surprised they're falling for that again. But where does the U.S. fit in there? That's one. The second part is um, with the misinformation that's been out there um, and um, lessons that we continue to re-experience that we haven't learned. Do you think we've now learned the lesson and the future for when we get other emerging infectious disease or even climate change and other disasters that may come? Have we learned anything? Do you actually foresee actually where the political will is there not to uh, take away funds from public health and other things that we've known for years, over 20 years, to make sure sure we have these things in place um, that we seem not to do. So that's the two-part question. And thanks uh, for allowing me to ask my two-part question. Thanks for that. Uh, Both great questions. So I think the first one was, where do we go from here on the Biden administration's front uh, to either compete or not compete with Russia and China on the world stage in terms of vaccine donations? And what I'll tell you is that the Biden administration over the last maybe four to five weeks has really, uh, actually I'd say two months or so, has really ramped up its efforts to hone in, home in on sort of what they're going to do for 2022 in terms of vaccine donations. So basically, you know, up until now or up until the fall, the focus in the administration has really been America first, get vaccines into arms here. Uh, and then, you know, and then we will look overseas. But what I can tell you is that the story is really shifting one from um, let's let's safeguard Americans to how are we going to help the world? I think, you know, we, we heard Biden from day one saying that was going to be a commitment of his, but that's hasn't really taken off until the past couple of months. And I think 2022 is going to be um 
it's it's going to be a huge story for the Biden administration, just how many doses they will end up delivering to the world. Again, like I said, the Biden administration um, has one billion doses they've ordered uh, from Pfizer for international distribution. The big question is, where are those doses going to go? And what I can tell you is we probably won't find out where those doses will going until they get where they're going. <laughs> that makes any sense. So I think it's fair to say that the doses will will go to countries in Africa. The question is what percentage of that 1 billion doses will go to low and middle income countries? I don't think the Biden administration has a choice at this point uh, other than to invest doses in those parts of the world that they have yet to reach, for example, for Africa. Now, The Biden administration has always said that they will not do what Russia and China are doing. They've said this publicly on Capitol Hill, at the podium, we are not going to use our vaccine for leverage. We're not going to blackmail people into taking our vaccine. And while I do believe that is true, that the administration does not have the same approach as China and Russia, we still don't really understand what the Biden administration's strategy is. So you have lawmakers on Capitol Hill, like Tim Kaine, who said in a hearing in August, why aren't we competing with Russia and China? You know, if Russia and China is out there using their vaccine as leverage, why can't we do that? Why can't we compete diplomatically with these two powerhouse nations? We should be doing that. So I think you have people on both sides of sides of the spectrum who say we should be competing with Russia and China. We have the best vaccines out there and we should be using them for diplomatic diplomatic, you know, consideration or leverage. And there are others who say you know, mostly the officials who work on the humanitarian side of things who say, you know, that that approach will not get us to herd immunity on the world stage. That approach will not will actually end up allowing for more variants to emerge, perhaps. So I think it really remains to be seen. And then on the second question that you said in terms of have we learned anything at this point, this far into the pandemic, I think I think we have. But I think there's a, a lot that has not been addressed. And I'll point out some of the things that we are still struggling to do. Uh, I've spent the past year or so reporting on on just U.S. public health in general and the way it's reacted and responded to COVID-19. And what I can tell you is that there continues to be a large disconnect between the local and state public health response to COVID and what the administration is doing at the national federal level to respond to the virus. And I'll point out a couple specific things. One is that our data modernizations effort has been really slow. So the way in which we collect and analyze COVID-19, you know, epidemiological data, crunch that data and determine how best to stop the spread of an outbreak or a virus at the local and state level is far, far, far too slow. Other countries like Israel and the UK are way more advanced at, at basically, you know, looking at the data and determining how to respond to the virus. Uh, we're still using really outdated systems. We're having reports come through snail mail or through fax. Uh, and it, our, our public health data system is basically crumbling at this point. And we have not invested enough money in ensuring that for the next pandemic or the next infectious disease outbreak, that we have the resources at the local and state public health level to, to get the job done. That's one thing I'll say. And then the next thing I'll say is that uh, our, our health care you know, system in general is really suffering at this point. We do not have a, enough doctors and nurses in this country to treat and respond to another pandemic. And so and a lot more needs to be done in terms of helping build up both the public health sector and just the sort of physician healthcare you know network in general. And then the third thing I, I'll say is that I I do think we've learned a lot about vaccine hesitancy in this country uh, and why people are not responding to messaging around uh, get, you know getting the vaccine. Uh, but I think a lot more needs to be done to sort of rebuild trust in this nation, um, rebuild trust uh, for institutions like the CDC, who has fumbled messaging uh, this this year over pu- its public health guidelines, public trust in top Biden health officials, and then also public trust in, in just the healthcare system in general. So I'll leave it there. Uh, thanks very much, Dan. Great question and a great comprehensive answer from Aaron. The next member of the audience I want to go to is Dr. Leslie Ann. And after Dr. Leslie Ann, we're going to go to Justin. 
So over to you, Dr. Leslie Ann. Hi, good morning, everyone. I'm Dr. Leslie. I'm an internist and a pediatrician and also have practiced in the um, U.S. Virgin Islands and several other islands. And so much that you have said, Aaron, that I wanted to respond to. But one of the questions, I know you addressed the, res- the U.S. response to Africa. And I am curious on your comments with regards to the U.S. response to the Caribbean nations, because as you know, so many Americans take vacations and go to the the United States. And I can speak specifically of the U.S. Virgin Islands, where we were able to close our borders and manage the disease. And once the borders opened up, of course, now we are in a surge situation unlike any other. Um, I know that the the U.S. back in the summer donated about five, I think it was 5.5 million doses of the vaccine to CARICOM countries. Um, And I, I don't know how much of a dent that has made because we've had so much um, bad messaging. Um, we've had to combat the, the misinformation in, in a major way. So I'm, I'm curious to know um, your thoughts on our response, the United States response to the Caribbean nations. And then the uh, second part is in rebuilding trust. And your thoughts around uh, developing or training education ambassadors from the communities that actually have greatest hesitancy and um, how we can actually reach the people with the people that are from that uh, particular group. I hope that makes sense. This is Dr. Leslie. I'm speaking. Thanks for that. I really appreciate those questions. Um, I guess I'll start with the second question first, if you don't mind. So rebuilding trust is one of the, as I said in my previous answers, I think one of the major things that we have to do as a country to rebuild trust in, in, um, in science, essentially, right, for, for the next infectious disease outbreak or pandemic, hopefully not pandemic, but you never know, I guess. And so one of the strategies the Biden administration attempted to sort of follow through with was um, the sort of local health messenger strategy, right? So to get people from the community to get educated about COVID-19 and to get out into the community talking about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And I don't think that ever really came to fruition. I think what ended up happening is that the federal government told states and local communities that they needed to do this, but then no one ever really followed through with it. And that's kind of a simplistic answer, but that's what I think happened. And so at one point, the administration was trying to work with um, religious leaders from across the country um, to get them to speak about the vaccine in their sermons or in their homilies or what have you. And that never really took off. And so I think we need to do a better job of making sure that the science gets into people's hands more effectively. Like I was speaking about this, I think, with officials maybe five months or so ago, but uh, for doctors and scientists and reporters and people who follow the media, you know, COVID is always on our minds. We're reading about it all day, every day. But I think we forget as this country that many people aren't watching the news during the day. They're worried about putting food on the table at night or picking up the kids from school. And they don't have time to read that, you know, complicated study from, you know, uh, you know, the latest scientific journal about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And I think, that was part of the messaging problem from the federal level, the state level, and the local level. Um, I think the local public health, you know, officials and leaders did a better job of this, but they have limited resources. And if, unless we invest more money in the local and public health, you know, infrastructure and in just the system in general, we're not going to have um, the ability to rebuild that trust. And so I, I think it's a, a matter of more resources. To your first question, I would say that uh, the CARICOM countries were uh, discussed at length at the beginning of the Biden administration um, about, you know, needing vaccine doses. I know it was a huge commitment by the State Department and a huge concern by the State Department to ensure that those doses got to the island nations. Um, I would say that they have not been receiving as many doses by by and large than, uh, for example, the Philippines has or other parts of, of, of Europe or Southeast Asia. And so when I've asked administration officials about this, their number one answer is always, well, we need to find a way to get the doses into arms more quickly in these countries and in, on these islands. And um, so they're 
I don't want to say it's an excuse, but their answer is always, you know, there's not enough a buildup of local, you know, public health infrastructure to ensure that the shots get into arms effectively. So if that's going to be the answer from the administration, then we need to do more to ensure that the shots do get into arms, right? It's a very simple answer. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Dr. Leslie Ann. The next question will be from Justin, who is the founder of this program. And after Justin, we are going to go to Tina. So over to you, Justin. Uh, John and Aaron, fantastic work here. We uh, keep learning new things, especially about the international response. My question goes back to what you already hit on. You basically framed it or explained it to us the way I heard it was Africa is almost being neglected. The continent of Africa is almost being neglected with certain vaccine donations from the United States due to infrastructure issues. And the continent's also being uh, neglected, as you said, from EU nations, so on and so forth. So my question wants to drill down on that. Maybe it's a two-parter, but it's it's one question. Um, when we look at the U.S. donating vaccines to certain Latin American nations, South American nations, the Philippines, does the excuse that there's not enough healthcare infrastructure in certain African nations actually hold up? We know that South Africa, for example, has one of the best um, early warning detection systems in, in genomes for certain viruses due to previous health issues that they've experienced. And then following, and then in addition to that, we know that there's plans in certain African nations to just bring everything to the cities and vaccinate people that way. So that's the first part. The second part of this question is, if there is a legitimate issue here, which I assume there is, is there anything being done, I would assume, at the USAID level to uh, procure funds, maybe from Congress or other uh, executive administration uh, slush pots, to actually help with the infrastructure of the delivery of these vaccines? Or is it just, this sucks, we're leaving Africa for last because they don't have infrastructure, we can't do anything about it? Uh, two great questions. So for your first question, I think you're right. I think the overarching response to the, you know, why aren't we getting more doses to Africa? The overarching response being, well, we need to build up public health infrastructure and we need to ensure doses get aren't don't expire. I think there's some truth to that for some countries in Africa, but the problem is we treat Africa as one large country, which is terrible and we should do that, but that's what we tend to do with, you know, we've done that with past viruses, with past infectious diseases. Um, and, and so that's that's wrong, and we should change that outlook. Um, obviously, South Africa performs much differently than you know other countries in on the continent. Uh, and so, I do think there is like a good reason to worry about shots in arms and shots expiring in places that really don't have healthcare systems. Um, but what I think needs to be done is, if that is the case then there needs to be a broader international response to making sure these countries can absorb doses. It can't just be on the U.S. to fix everything, right? While I think the U.S. can do a lot more for Africa in terms of getting doses to the continent and then also, you know, putting up cash for the infrastructure part of things, I think there needs to be a, a more cohesive global response to making sure that these countries have what they need in terms of, you know, training healthcare workers to, to take the vaccine and distribute it equitably. Um, and, and, but we can also rely on some of these NGOs that have been working in these countries forever to do some of that. So the problem is we, we haven't as a, as a world really been working on the international distribution vaccine effort up until, you know, until the last few months, right? So it has not been a coordinated world response. And that's really what the Biden administration's goal is for 2022 is to get other countries on board and to like coordinate the response. And, but the problem is they're going to have to lean more on COVAX and give COVAX the authority and the space to make decisions about where vaccine go and to do that coordination. I think the problem is that some officials across the world have been incredibly frustrated with COVAX, saying that their, you know, the group's efforts have not been uh, moving swiftly enough. But 
we got to figure out, are we going to rely on COVAX? Are we going to go through COVAX and distribute the doses through that mechanism? Or are we going to do direct donations and not rely on COVAX? That has been sort of the main sticking point. And then to your second question, yes, we published a story uh, this morning on this. USAID is basically the main agency in the U.S. government that works um, operationally on the ground to ensure the doses actually get into the country and that the countries can get the doses off the tarmac and then distributed. Um, but USAID is running out of money to do this. So they've been doing a lot of work on readiness. And readiness means basically getting healthcare workers trained, making sure the shots uh, can get into the right freezer and then from the freezer into the arms. Uh, and so I think USAID officials have said they have enough funding to be able to do this for the next several months into 2022. But the big question is what happens after that? And they are quickly running out of money to do that. So the big conversation that will happen in February, March in USAID in coordination with the White House and the State Department is how are we going to get more money either from Congress um, allocated for this global effort, or can we tap into existing pots of money uh, to do this? Now, the only problem there is if you, USAID does do the second option, which is take money from other programming and divert it to the COVID effort, then what happens to that those other efforts, right? Some of those other efforts are, are for things like, you know, getting measles vaccines out there or doing wash programs in other countries. Uh, so it's going to be a big debate. And I think that will probably come up again in February. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Justin. Of course, the U.S. does have some experience with uh, pandemic response in sub-Saharan Africa from the 2014 Ebola outbreak. It was especially focused on Guinea-Conarchy, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. Of course, very different circumstances. But interestingly enough, in the U.S. side, it shares a protagonist, and that's Ron Klain, who was Obama's so-called Ebola czar and is now the White House chief of staff, playing a big role in this pandemic response. So perhaps some lessons have been learned about how to effectively uh, utilize uh, the infrastructure that's available. I think we're probably going to have time for only one more question, unfortunately. And that is uh, from Tina. Tina, you might be the last question. So we're going over to you now. Thank you, Justin and uh, John. Erin, um, I would like to know, how do you see uh, our future regarding uh, to Omicron uh, virus and its diplomacy. Um, do we have a day without any virus at all? And what you can learn as um, as a USA can uh, what USA can learn from other countries regarding uh, to Omicron uh, vaccine uh, diplomacy. I'm I'm a European citizen. That's why. I'm asking that. Thank you, Erin. Thanks for that. Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, a couple of things. What the U.S. can be learning from other countries. So I, I think I said this at the beginning of our talk here today, but the U.S., has developed its own sort of way of looking at um, COVID-19 and responding to COVID-19 and has really been um, making decisions about the federal response in a very sort of siloed way. So, you know, when the Biden administration decides that it wants to move forward with a broad booster rollout, it's not necessarily, you know, coordinating with parts of Europe. So what usually ends up happening is the U.S. will make a decision and then the Europeans will make a very similar decision after that. So I would say that um, that's usually how it works and how it will probably continue to work. I do think top health officials in the administration are learning from other countries um, with Omicron in the sense that, uh, you know, so the variant has been spreading overseas, uh, you know, before it came to the U.S. So, uh, you know, I've spoken with Fauci about this. He relies on data from South Africa, from Israel, from parts of the U.K. to try to understand the way the virus mutates and, and, and sort of is spreading across parts of, of South Africa and Europe. 
and so in that way, we are coordinating with other countries, particularly on the data issue. That is that is the main way the Biden administration coordinates with other countries is, is through data because our own public health data, unfortunately, is not strong enough. Um, and then in terms of your first question, will we ever have a day that where there is not a COVID-19 infection? I don't know the answer to that. I do not have a crystal ball, but what I'll tell you is a lot of uh, top Biden health officials will say that this might eventually end up being like the flu where we'll constantly have seasons of COVID and we'll have um, booster shots and uh, that will be something we have to live with. Uh, But I don't think that anybody has made any conclusion about about COVID-19 and the future of uh, COVID-19, at least not you know, comprehensively yet. We're still, we're experiencing a new variant, right? I think people thought after Delta, maybe we would experience a little bit of a lull, Um, but we have Omicron now. And I I don't think Omicron is going to be the last mutation or variant. Uh, So I think we're probably a far far way off from from ever considering whether or not, you know, COVID uh, won't be here one day. But I do think that there are officials who are sort of hoping that this turns into a milder, form of the virus eventually, and that we can all sort of start looking at it societally a little bit differently. All right. Thank you very much, Tina. And thank you again to Aaron. You've been fantastic. We're so glad that we had you here. You've been very generous with your time. But before we close out, I just want to give you the opportunity. Is there any final thought you'd like to leave us with something that we didn't get a chance to cover as uh, your final piece of parting analysis or advice? We did cover a lot, but it's an enormous topic. So I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share before we wind things down. Thanks so much for having me. Everybody also, thank you for your questions, very insightful questions. This was a great conversation. Um, I think, you know, the story to watch is really going to be the global COVID-19 story. That will be the big one in 2022. And I think the public deserves to know some answers from the Biden administration about what strategy they're employing on the on the donation front, why they're sending doses to certain countries over others. Um, that is my hope that we'll begin to learn more about that. And then just on a very personal note, um, you know, everybody should go get their booster shot and make sure you're all safe and sound for the next couple of months. And we'll have to continue to wait and see what will happen with Omicron. But I'll leave it at that. Everybody stay safe. That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Aaron and Politico, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. If you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question, or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.club or pm101.live. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning on behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team. Thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.